This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. It is a pleasure to be here at RRR today. Dr. Shane speaking. In the studio with me is Dr. Lyndon. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you, climate lady? Very well, thank you. We're going to talk a lot about climate later, so I know you're excited about that. We have a couple of guests coming in. And Chris KP, looking... Um, <laughs> like I'm here. Like you're uh, happy to be here. <laughs> I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, now, normally on the show, folks, we would start off with some news, but today we, uh, we somehow, I'm not sure how this happened, but we have ended up with four guests because there were so many amazing guests that were presented to me and I have trouble saying no. And so we've ended up with four guests. So we're going to get straight into our first guest. His name is Sid Verma. He's the co-founder of a program called Brainstem. Sid, welcome to the studio of Triple R. Good morning, and thank you for having me over. It's great to have you in here. Now, now, Brainstem's something I have to say, I'll, I'll admit I don't know a lot about. I've heard the name, but I don't know a lot of details about it. But a lot of your work involves basically getting people into STEM, getting kids into STEM and so forth. So why don't you run us through what the Brainstem program is? So Brainstem uh, is, is a not-for-profit organization that uh, my wife and I started uh, almost three and a half years back. Mm-hmm. Uh, like everything scientific and technical, Brainstem is an acronym, which is bringing research and innovation to STEM. Uh, and the whole idea is uh, that we want to get inspire as many high school students to be more involved into STEM. Mm. Um, a huge advocate for gender equality uh, and uh, bring the idea of mentoring into high school kids so that they get more excited about science and what it can do. Hmm. What made you and your wife decide to start BrainSTEM? Um, long story short, uh, my son, when he was in year nine, he took part in a school science competition. Uh, and the background for that is uh, we went to India for a holiday a few years before that. He met his great-grandfather, who was 92 years old, uh, established a very strong bond with him, uh, came back to Melbourne, heard that, uh, you know, he had fallen down at home at the age of 92 uh, for about three, uh, for about six hours. He was lying alone. Uh, no one got to him, fractured his hip, and uh, a month later he passed away. So for Drew, uh, my son, uh, who uh, was quite taken by that, he thought about, you know, the fact that why is it that, you know, when people are alone and they need help the most, uh, there should be some way to get get access to them. And so he came up with this whole uh, solution called Protego, which is proactive technology for elderly on the go. Uh, and that uh, took him to win the school competition, the state, the regionals, and landed up at the BHP Bulletin Science and Engineering Award. Um I think he had the age of 14 years old. I think he was probably one of the youngest winners of the, of the competition. And that landed up representing him, uh, representing Australia at the Intel International Science and Engineering Fair, which is the world's largest pre-college science competition. So we were in Pittsburgh in, in 2015, embarrassing the life out of him, you know, mom and dad waving flags <laughs> of Australia. And, um, uh, but while we were there, we met students from all over the world. And... Uh, you know, it is a case of, you know, you go to these extremely smart kids and ask them, tell me about your project. And uh, some of them would be like, you know, I've made this pen and, you know, I'm too smart and this is my invention. And there were others about, you know, how the pen was made and why it was made and the whole story behind that. And I told my wife, I said, if this is the smartest 1700 kids in the world in 2015, uh, why isn't every single child talking about the how and the why and the science behind what they did? You know, what about the smart ones who didn't get here? What about the smart ones who didn't put their hand up in school mm. because they didn't get the opportunity? And what about the smart ones or the ones who are, who have an opportunity to do something, 
but never got a chance. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's intensely interesting to me because one of the things I've often said on air is that I think we're all born curious and through our education system, somehow we get rid of that. <laughs> you know, like a lot of people end up not being as curious as, as they get older, but kids start off curious. That's what we learn. We're, we're biologically designed to put our hand in the fire once and work things out. And then we, we breathe, almost, you know, run that out of people over, over a period. Chris? So I'm, I'm interested in that, in that, exactly that concept that they're at, a, at a point in time where there's a competition or a, or a subject at school or whatever it is, there are some kids for whom it works perfectly and we recognize them and a lot of others that we don't. So how, how do you guys go about recognizing that? How do you find those kids that maybe haven't had a big noise made yet or haven't been, if you like, you know, discovered or haven't or haven't got comfortable with doing that? Well, the structure hasn't worked yeah, for them. Yeah. yeah. Well, for us, there, there are three main components of, of running Brainstem. So we, we run the Brainstem Innovation Challenge, we run the Regional Girls Innovation Challenge, and we're just launching a whole new design challenge or the international design challenge. But we actually rely on the teachers in the school. And the three components we need are the students, uh, the mentors in the university or research organizations, and the program by itself. So we rely heavily on the teachers in the schools to handpick the students that they think have an opportunity or are missing out somehow. We don't want the A-plus students because they already are, they, they are the, the, the ones who will find their own way. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, for me, it's if you do a sliding scale of the kids in, in the schools, the top 5% will find their own way. The bottom 10% will somehow get by because of the, whatever help you can provide. It's the middle 85% that runs Australia. Uh, and, and we want to reach those students and, you know, make them feel like that they are the A pluses or the A minuses, even though they might not be uh, mm. in terms of mm. academics. But we, that's how the selection happens. Yeah. And, and Sid, tell us, you mentioned just then the Regional Girls Innovation Challenge. I mean, specifically, what is, what is that program? So that is, a, that is an exciting one for us because last year, I, you know, I, I talk about the whole idea that, you know, that everyone should have a world domination idea. <laughs> you know, for us, uh, <laughs> absolutely. Because if, if for, yeah. for these young kids, you know, if they they are the ones who are building and creating their own world. They have to feel like they are dominating it. You know, they, they have to create their own world. And so I, you know, in terms of my world domination area, I said we want to reach 400 schoolgirls in the next two years. That has happened at, at our presentation event last year. And uh, didn't know how, but we thought we'll do it somehow. And uh, we got approached by uh, the uh, the Florida Institute or Women in Science Parkwood Precinct to say that, um, you know, we have been approached by an organization in Gippsland, the STEM Sisters, and they're looking to run a program for uh, the girls from regional Victoria in terms of getting them to some of the organizations here and just to get an experience of what happens in these, you know, in, in, in WeHi, in Flory, and so on and so forth. We said, sure, we can do a 12-week Mm-hmm. innovation challenge for them. Uh, so we matched four g- girls from a school with one mentor at one of these WISP organizations, partner organizations, and magic happened. You know, we went for 12 weeks. Uh, these girls had never been to these sort of organizations before. Mm. So I know that we need more scientists, we need more female scientists, but I also know that we need more people who love thinking scientifically outside of scientific organisations, scientifically-minded politicians, scientifically-minded communicators, scientifically-minded lots of different things. Is Brainstem 
looking at at that kind of thing, infiltrating science everywhere. Maybe that's my world domination plan. (laughs) Clearly. (laughs) Uh, For me, it's about starting those conversations as early as possible. So for us, uh, you're right. So when we, when we talk about mentors, you know, it is not just the academics in the universities. It's, it's, uh, it's people working in industries, people working with any to do anything to do with science or business or entrepreneurship or engineering who can engage these young minds as early on as possible. So for us, you know, the, the scale of the growth has to come from uh, from finding as many of these mentors as possible. Absolutely. So, for, I mean, for if there was a, if there was a call to action, it's about uh, if you are remotely interested in working with high school kids and inspiring them, come and talk to us. Mm. Sid, uh, one one sort of final question for me is: you, you run them through this program, but one of the things that I find with many programs is there's a lack of sustained sort of impact. You know, mm-hmm. so the, the kids will come through and they'll get excited for a few months and then a year later, you know, it's sort of back to the way things were. I mean, how, how do you deal with that? Because that's something that, you know, is really important with high school kids in particular where their, you know, their, their, their bodies and their minds and their environment is changing so, you know, radically from year to year. How do you, how do you maintain you know, what you're creating. How does that work? Absolutely. So we're doing two things. The first one is because we run a program over 12 weeks, um, I'm not a big fan of a one-day program or a mm. two-day program because, you know, by the time you get in there, you get excited. It's over. Yeah, it's over. Yeah. Uh, so the reason why we run a 12-week program is because we, we begin with uh, the, the teams meeting the mentors. They get used to each other. You know, there's a whole uh, conversation around how you can fail easily and, you know, you actually get into the program. Uh, it takes the first two to three weeks just to somehow get get into your uh, into what you want to work on. The next six, seven weeks go through what you're actually working on the program. Mm-hmm. And then the final couple of weeks are about presentation, pitching, bringing your idea together. But uh, in terms of measuring impact, we are actually uh, embarking on a, on a program of how... So I had a long chat with one of the uh, leaders from Stanford who are running a, a program called RISE, where they run a STEM program for kids in California who come to Stanford for, for I think, for about 12 weeks, mm-hmm. uh, uh, three months, sorry. Um, but we, 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 we're building an uh, impact measurement framework. Uh, and going back to all the students who've taken part in the past brainstorm innovation challenges, which is over, so we've done 300 students so far, 4,000 hours of mentoring, and go back and find out what's happened since you came through the program. The stories that come out of the program are remarkable. You know, we had a girl who was in year nine, t- came to the program, uh, didn't know where the science was for us. Uh, for her, 10 weeks later, she gets up on stage and she says they, she has a device which can save a baby's life at the children's hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have another boy whose parents were dentists. He comes to us after the program and says, after going through brainstem, I've spoken to my parents. They wanted me to become a dentist. I want to go into clinical research. Mm-hmm. So we know the, the change in these students is immediate mm-hmm. uh, as, I mean, in terms of how they change their thinking. But in terms of the long-term impact, uh, we are starting to measure that now. That's fantastic. Sid, look, it's, it's great talking about this. I assume if people uh, Google Brainstem, they'll find what they need to. No, and... I Googled Brainstem this morning. Uh, and you didn't find it? No, I found a lot of information about the Brainstem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so where, where do people go? So brainstem.org.au, which is yep. our website. Uh, please uh, jump on there. There's a contact us page and uh, we are looking for as many mentors as possible. PhDs, yeah. uh, academics, mentors, industry. Men and women, I assume. Men, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm all about normalizing the conversation uh, because, and, you know, so we shouldn't have to talk about getting more girls into STEM. It should just be an automatic inclusion yeah. without, without, beyond doubt. Look, sounds like a great program. Sid, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us. Good luck. I hope it uh, goes far and wide and uh, keep those kids interested. Thank you for having me over. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. 
In the studio with us now is Professor Karen Vespore. She's from the School of Computing and Information Systems at the University of Melbourne. Karen, welcome to the studio. Thank you so much for having me. Look, it's great to have you in. I mean, we know each other because, you know, we both work on the same campus and we interact a bit. But there's there's a very exciting new centre that's just started at the University of Melbourne. It's been funded by the Australian Research Council. Tell us all about this centre because it's 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 different to a lot of the ones I've seen. It seems to be has quite a different focus. That's right. This is different from a lot of the centres of research that mm. you see because the emphasis is on training. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, what we're looking to do is to train essentially the next generation of scientists who are comfortable in the intersection between uh, computing and technologies and medicine. Mm. And so we're really trying to develop a new a new discipline, really, um, and train people for that future. Yeah, I mean, my, my image was always that there were the computer people in you so that you, you put food under the door and the, pro- <laughs> the programs got emailed to you later and then you handed those to the medical people and they didn't know where they came from. And is, is that that's the traditional model? Of course, that's, yeah, computer scientists just sitting in a dark room programming. That's definitely how it all happens. <laughs> we know that's not true. But, I mean, how, how does it, I mean, how do, you, you've worked with the medical community quite a lot. I mean, how does that, how does that work? Because it's, it does the departments are so separated on most university campuses. I mean, how do you go about interacting with what is quite a different clinical space? Well, as you know, I spend a lot of time talking to clinicians. So mm. I think it's really important to get the two people or the two groups in the room and, and just talk about where things overlap and how, how there are synergies between interests. And honestly, it requires learning. Mm. You have to educate yourself um, about the, the challenges that, in, in my case, that the clinicians are are facing and also learn about how they're using data to make decisions and and really think about you know whether there are ways where we can leverage uh, computation or in or AI as we're trying to do in this training center mm. in order to to kind of make those decisions um, a little easier for, for the do, clinician do you find uh, I think back to my background you know in physics and we like love data and stuff you know yeah. it's like give me more give me more but the clinicians I interact with are like oh data is there data somewhere? It's like they're a bit scared. You know, it's like, and this is big stuff. I mean, some, especially some of the data we're talking about is immense and it's, it's very, you know, it's computationally intensive. I mean, how do you, how do you find that interaction with them? Because presumably this is a space where they've had such control over their dominion for so long. And now this big beast is coming in that might completely change the way they go about their business. Absolutely. It can be challenging. I, I think the thing that I come back to is evidence. So most clinicians are trained to make decisions based on evidence. Mm-hmm. They also look to research, um, to, to gather evidence about, let's say, the best treatment for a particular, particular disease. And so they're comfortable with ideas from statistics, like we have a case control trial, and we can we can see that there's a statistically significant effect for this population versus that population. So in the training for for doctors, mm. they're being exposed to these kind of basic data concepts. Now, we, what we're talking about is, of course, taking it to the next level. And yep. as you kind of alluded to, looking at much bigger data sets and, and looking at different kinds of information. And it's not a nice, neat case control kind of environment that we're in. But the basic idea of this is something that clinicians, I think, can appreciate. And so we I tend to use that as a starting point for opening a conversation and just yeah. saying, right, we're not doing this kind of very structured statistical experiment. We want to look at the data that's occurring naturally in the real world. But the basic starting point is quite similar. Mm. So, Karen, can you give us 
an example of of how this is going to work, how this Venn diagram of computer science and medical science is going to is overlapping, is overlapping already. Yeah, it is already overlapping. And and so actually the training center is a collaboration um, between, of course, the university and IBM Research. And IBM Research has already started down this path um, f- interacting, for instance, with the Flory Institute um, uh, on campus at the, at, the, at the University of Melbourne um, to, to look at Alzheimer's. And one of the things that they've been working on there is to try to take advantage of, of more diverse information or data um, in order to help start to, to diagnose Alzheimer's. So what they've been looking at there is, is to consider um, blood plasma. So basically take a blood draw and start to look at, at proteins that are floating around in the blood, uh, combine it with genetic information. And by coupling these or kind of layering these different sources of information together, you can then start to build a model which looks for patterns of, okay, if you have these proteins floating around and you have this particular genetic profile, coupling those actually gives us a, a better confidence in in being able to diagnose the the start of the disease so that that sounds like what you mentioned earlier this idea of of introducing more overt ai into into diagnostics and at, at the end user point ai comes with a certain degree of faith like you have to whether it's patients or clinicians you've sort of got to go okay i trust the system if you like how comfortable are they with that are they, are they aware of of that level of that leap of faith and are they comfortable so I think there is an issue around the explainability of what these algorithms are doing. And, you know, coming back to that case control s- scenario, they're quite comfortable with saying, all right, we've tested this in yeah. a population and, and it works. And in a way, we're going to be doing the same thing. So we're going to be looking at retrospective data and using that as a starting point for testing what, what, how well the AI works. And so, a lot of this, I think, comes down to, first of all, convincing people about the efficacy by demonstrating that if we can essentially blind what, what we do know about particular people mm. and that the AI can sort of accurately yeah. re-predict what we already knew um, in that blinded scenario, then they'll have a level of confidence yeah, about cool. that. Mm. Karen, you mentioned IBM's involved in the center. What this is a big computing and technology company. I mean, what role is IBM playing in this space? Because it, it's unusual for a company like IBM to get involved in little countries like Australia. Well, IBM Research here in Melbourne has actually had a very um, close relationship yeah, yep. with the university, and they've been interested in in um, the genomic space, particularly since the beginnings. So they've been in Australia, I think, since two thousand and eight, mm. um, and definitely since two thousand eleven. So in two thousand eleven, um, they were involved with something called the Victorian Life Sciences Computation Initiative, which was basically a big machine, um, which was trying to do very sophisticated bioinformatics uh, mm. research. And so IBM started with that, sort of starting using computers to help us make sense of um, biological data. And so this center kind of represents a, a natural um, extension. We're increasing the complexity of the, of, uh, the data, so it's no longer just genetic data. Uh, we're now looking at diverse data sources and also looking at a broader set of set of problems. But remember, it is a training center. So, so yeah. part of the motivation for for IBM is that um, they want employees, and um, so actually. They're, they're finding that it's difficult to recruit p- 
people who have the right set of skills to push the the cutting edge of of this kind of computational research. Yeah. See, see, I find that fascinating when you when you talk about that because one of the things I've said a few times on air is around, in particular, around climate. You know, Lyndon will jump out of her seat at this, but you know, the idea that health professionals and so forth also need to understand aspects of climate. You know, if you're talking about mass population migrations and the sorts of different health implications of the changing climate, there is an entire space for graduates in that area that we do not yet feed. And we will need people who can do that. And we don't have people who can do that. And it's, a, a, you know, similarly, similar to what you're saying, this area where these people sit in the middle ground and, you know, you, you, you're not sacrificing depth here of knowledge. You're just giving them a range of skills. Um, and it was funny, I did an interview with Randy Schleckman, one of the, the former Nobel Prize winners about a week ago, and I asked him, what's your advice for all? There was a group of, you know, postgrads in the room. And I said, what's your advice for all for, for a, a solid career in science? And he said, learn other stuff other than the bit, the, the narrow piece you've been doing, learn other stuff. That was his, you know, his golden words. He said nothing else. He said, just learn other stuff, please, which was, which was interesting. Definitely. It takes a long time and it takes a commitment to doing that. Um, I, you know, I do work in that interdisciplinary space, but, but, and, and at the university, um, we set up a few years ago an, uh, a new major in computational biology. And we find that it's actually one of the most intensive majors in the undergraduate curriculum at the whole university. Why? Because you have to learn computing and you also have to learn biology. biology. And so in order to learn, enough computing and enough biology to actually contribute in the computational yeah. bioscience space. It takes a lot of effort. Yeah. And I don't know if this is still true, but when, when I was a student, the people who were doing computing were definitely not the ones doing biology and vice versa. <laughs> so there must be a thin yeah. wedge there of people who do both. It's starting to come together, yeah. I think, because people are seeing the, the promise of bringing these two things together. And it's exciting. I mean, you know, why do I do? I'm a computer scientist. In fact, I, I you know, my research um, for most of my career um, was not is in natural language processing. Right. And I'll still be lever leveraging that in, in the training center, actually. Um, but trying to think about how I can leverage my skills in natural language processing and move into a new direction got me into things like scientific literature mining. Mm. And more recently, we're looking at electronic health records and trying to deal with the unstructured information that's in there. <laughs> but it's been a journey and it's been, it's required me to, to, to really invest. And it's not always the easiest path. Yeah. So what will the training center train people in? Are you going to be uh, kind of retro training physicians that are already out there or are you going to be um, offering postgraduate courses? What is a week in the training centre going to look like? Do you know? Well, it's really around PhD students and postdoctoral researchers. So the training is in research in this intersection. Most of the students that will be coming into this particular training centre will have a computer science background or an electrical engineering background. So um, a couple of the projects are, are a little bit closer to electrical engineering, uh, but the emphasis is, is on AI and machine learning. And so what they will be trained in essentially is having more understanding of the, the medical context and the, the clinical data that we're going to be able to, to access. So it's PhD students. Um, it's postdoctoral researchers. Again, we would expect them mostly to be people who have background in natural language processing or machine learning or some something along those lines. Karen, be, before we let you go, I, I think I just want to learn a bit more about the natural language processing stuff. So this is like you, you take, you know, 
I mean, Chris writes like a like an animal. Um, you know, you, you'd take you'd take that sort of that sort of text, presumably. I mean, this is like you know, doctor's scribblings, and somehow draw out scribblings. The, no, no, you can't no deal with you scribbles. As beyond, long as as yeah. long as it's oh, typed, as I'll as start it's there. And so and so. What what you're trying to do there? I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong, but you're you're trying to pull out like the the massive diversity in the way people speak, and pull out some sort of consistent information. Is that is that? Yeah, the that's right. We're trying to cope with all of the diversity uh, in way the the ideas can be written down and uh, try to normalize it, try to standardize it. Turning words into numbers as a historical climate person, that, I find <laughs> yeah. that very exciting. That is exactly <laughs> what we're trying to do because once they're numbers, then we can start to think about they're doing comparable. more predictive models and you know all of this AI, kind of the meta AI, I suppose you could yeah. call it. So we've got to do AI to do more AI. Isn't that crazy? I, I find it fascinating. How much do you, like how much do you have to throw out? Because the, the, medi- the, the way medical information recorded is recorded is so random and at times can i use the word crap it's yeah it's our show we can, <laughs> it, it's so bad but you, you you look at it and you think this who wrote this you know like it just it doesn't seem scientific in the way it's written sometimes well and it's not it's an artifact of a process That's right, right. Mm, you know yeah, the yeah. clinicians are 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 writing it down for multiple reasons yep. and you have to understand those reasons right part of it is is just to um, remember things right as a as a as a memory yep. aid so they yep. can look it up the next time and part of it is uh, to pass on that information to to someone else so it's not they're not thinking about it from an AI perspective for sure um, but we have to be sensitive to how how it was there and what we I have a student right now who's looking at um, trying to find the similarity of different notes in, a, in an electronic health record. The mm. idea being that, um, again, we want to learn from the patterns that are associated with one patient in order to help us make inferences about the next patient. Um, and she's finding that basically there are templates. There are little structured phrases that, that clinicians tend to use. And what we have to do to deal with the text is throw away the bits that are repeated. Patient presents with a phrase right. like yeah. that. Who cares? Yeah. Who cares? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so we have to find those phrases and, and essentially ignore them so that we can focus on the meaty bits that are that are relevant to the patient. Yeah, well, it, it's fascinating. The, the other thing that um, I'm wondering whether you uh, so this program will get involved with is this, this concept in medicine, which I think is really problematic, where a person with comorbidities goes into a hospital, you know, multiple conditions, and they have one one specialist that mm. works in one area and another specialist who works in another area. So you know, you'll deal with my kidneys and Lyndon will deal with my heart and you will never speak to each other. And it seems to me as though, you know, a lot of the work that you're doing, especially, you know, where you're looking at the data and informing the clinicians can reintegrate the body <laughs> into one system. And that's really the hope because, in fact, almost all of medical research has that single morbidity mm, kind yeah. of model. Um, you know, the case control trial, you control for any comorbidities. You just get rid of them, right? Yeah. And, and yeah. so that means essentially most of what we know about medicine is based on very healthy populations, right? They're, they're populations that mm. have exactly one thing wrong with them, the, <laughs> yep. the one thing that you're studying. Finally. Yeah. Yeah. And so as soon as you throw in uh, complexity, actually, we we don't often know. Um, and so doctors are just guessing, like based on what I know about how we treat the kidney and based on what I know about how we treat mm. the heart, I'm going to make a decision. But what about that intersection? Yeah. You've got a patient that has both things wrong with them. What then? 
Well, that's what we need to start looking at the data for. We have lots of examples of real people in the real world that have these comorbidities. And so maybe we can learn from, from their experiences. Yeah. Look, I think it's a, a very exciting and potentially scary time for a few clinicians, but it's somewhere where, you know, we, we have so much information and you, you know, we, you may have heard our previous guests talk about the example of the, you know, the, the grandparent who was lying mm-hmm. on the floor. You know, it's sort of like we've had technology to deal with that for 20 years. Is, you know, we're just we're just not using it. So there's so much there that can be done. Um, Karen, thanks so much for coming and chatting to us. The name of the centre is? It's the Australian Research Council Training Centre. Oh, sorry, I got it wrong. <laughs> the Australian Research Council Industrial Transformation Training Centre in Cognitive Computing for Medical Technologies. What's that acronym? A bit of a mouthful. Uh, we don't have an acronym, oh, have except an acronym. we have a hashtag, which yeah. is hashtag MedTechAI. Sounds great. Okay. Let's go with the hashtag. Mm. Um, I always love the names of these centers. <laughs> some, some poor bug is going to have to design a logo that has all that in it somewhere. <laughs> we have a logo too. <laughs> Got a logo too. Karen, great to see you. Thanks for coming in and good luck with this center. It sounds really great. Thank you very much. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. In the studio now, we, and this is rare that this happens at the same time, but we have guests from the University of Melbourne and Monash, Uni- Monash, Monash University at the same time. It's, you know, I mean, we haven't okayed that. Are we going to be banned? Uh, no, I'll put, put a plexiglass screen between the two of them <laughs> so there's no argy-bargy. But no, in the studio, we've had uh, Andrew King, who's a lecturer in climate science at the School of Earth Sciences at the University of Melbourne. And we also have Roger Dargaville, who is a senior lecturer in renewable energy at Monash University. Guys, welcome to the studio. Hi, Shane. How's it going? Great to have you in there. Now, we, we've grabbed you in. Well, Lyndon actually sorted this one out because there was a IPC IPCC report that has come out that we wanted to talk through. So, Lyndon, why don't you give us a little bit of background on what this group does, and then we'll get uh, these two gentlemen to talk through, you know, what it means. Sounds like a good idea, Dr. Shane. So, I assume most people have seen in the news this week the IPCC uh, has released a report about uh, warming uh, to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial global temperatures. So there's a lot of, that's a lot of information and there's an acronym in there in one sentence, yep. a bit obnoxious. So I just thought I would give a bit of an overview about what the IPCC is and where this kind of report sort of sits. So the IPCC is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It was set up in the late uh, 1980s, 1988, I think, yeah. um, by the World Meteorological Organization and the UN. There are 195 countries who are part of the IPCC. So that... It's pretty much all the countries. Mm. I was going to say, how many, how many are not involved in yeah, that? Yeah, I, I actually looked it up this morning. I couldn't find it. So oh, okay. I think it's yeah. pretty much all the countries Most of the world. Yeah. And uh, it is tasked with providing information to the UN and to the world about climate science and climate change science, the scientific stuff, the technical stuff, um, and the socioeconomic kind of information that the mm. world needs to help make decisions about this issue. Thousands of science con- Thousands of scientists contribute on a voluntary basis uh, to these reports that are put together. The panel doesn't do science itself. It kind of collates and summarises peer-reviewed literature that's done all around the world, right? So they've had 
five big assessment reports that have come out since they were formed. They're mm-hmm. huge. They're like they yeah. could you, you could probably kill a man with these books, and there's there's <laughs> been about five of those. Yeah, presumably, if you dropped it on the man, I mean, yeah, not just from reading. Well, it. I know reading it could be pretty intense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. summaries, right? Yes, yeah. So there's, they make these big reports every five or six years or so, summarising the state of play mm. uh, of climate change science, and then they occasionally do special reports as well about different components. So the role of aviation in the atmosphere right, yeah, or yeah, um, yeah. renewable energies. Although the last, one of the latest, latest ones was about extreme events, the impact mm, of extreme mm. events and risks and these kinds of things, extreme weather and climate events. Uh, so this is a new one. It's about, uh, if anyone remembers the Paris Agreement at the end of yeah, 2015, yeah. I think it was, uh, the government's kind of said we're going to try and keep global warming to about, well, Hopefully under two degrees and yep. ideally one point five degrees. And we're, we're just to be clear, we're currently at one degree now, aren't we? Like one degree is already we've got there. Yes. Bra- bravo, world. <laughs> no, Chris, You've, it's not. <laughs> Chris just got excited hand. there. But, <laughs> but, uh, it worked so hard. <laughs> well, I think a lot of people are working very hard to make yeah. us uh, get there. But um, yeah, yeah one, so one the, degree. I, the IPCC were invited to do a report about what does that mean? What does one point mm. five degrees look like? How can we get there? What does the science say? Yeah. I'm not an expert on that stuff. As I said before, I, t- I like looking yeah, at yeah. the past a bit more. So we thought we'd bring in the big guns today to yeah. tell us a bit more about this yeah. this big report. Yeah. So, Andrew, uh, I, I, had a, I had a look at the um, – I managed to get myself through the press release, which is uh, – <laughs> as, as press releases go – it was only three pages, which actually, you know, I've always said if you send, and for everyone in the comms office out there uh, who's listening, you send me more than the page, I will use the second page for something not nice. Um, <laughs> I do not read beyond the page, but this one, I read, I read the whole thing. And, like, there's a lot in there. I mean, there's, you know, one of the things that struck me was that this document had 91 authors. <laughs> I mean, that's a coordination job that I wouldn't like to do, frankly. Um, so what, what's the guts of this report? I mean, give us, give us some of the highlights of what it's telling us. Yeah, well, as you're saying, there's, there's a lot of detail in the report and Lyndon summarised it really well. And every word of even the summary of the report is poured over yeah, word by yeah, word from representatives of 120 countries. So it's yeah. really... They tried really hard to get it down to three pages yeah, for that press release. Yeah. I'd reckon. Good effort. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good effort. Um, there's yeah, there's a lot of highlights in there. Um, so, firstly, around uh, the benefits uh, of holding global warming to one and a half degrees mm. relative to two degrees or above. Mm. Um, so, in terms of um, mean climate. And also extremes, uh, heat waves, the like, um, and also then impacts on ecosystems as well. Um, one of the most um, uh, damning results is really to do with the, the coral reefs. Right. Um, yeah. So, if even if we stick to, if we manage to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees, which is a, a huge ask, um, that would still be. Um, the result in the loss of maybe 70% to 90% of the coral reefs around the world. But that's still better than a, a two-degree world. Yeah, and I saw that the two-degree world meant more than 99%. I love the specificity there. They didn't say all. <laughs> like there's some little some little patch of coral somewhere, you know, off the coast of, of nowhere that's still alive, you know. like it's the red- to protect a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. Yes. and it's actually... The part they're talking about is the bit that's left in people's aquariums, or something. You know, like and the rest is all gone. Like so, yeah. So the and in terms of the 
like the the rate at which we're getting there. I mean, what what did it say about that? Because it, you know, to me, this feels it feels and and correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, there is a very very heavy train here, and I'm trying to stop it with a paper plane. You know, just it seems as though the impetus is is heavily towards us going past this 1.5 degrees. Yeah, I think there's very few climate scientists who who think that we're going to be able to achieve this target. Um, that's not to dismiss the report. It's mm. it's just to say that it's very optimistic to think that we we could limit global warming to these levels. Mm. And um, the the line from the IPCC is that it will require unprecedented change. Yeah, um, I, I read that line. That was ooh, that feels feels difficult. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so Lyndon mentioned the the Paris Agreement. Um, from two years ago. So each of the countries uh, gave an indication of what they'd be prepared to reduce their emissions by. If you add up all those commitments, we're still on target for three to four degrees wow. warming, yeah. even with that really good news from Paris, because uh, that was a significant change. So we have to revise those targets down considerably to avoid uh, two degrees and even 1.5. Mm. Before we move on to targets and emissions and all that sexy stuff, um, I just want to ask Andrew, because your area of research is about finding the fingerprints of climate change on these kinds of extreme events. And, you know, this is a really heavy document that's getting giving lots of information to governments all around the world. And yet I know, and a lot of people have said it to me this week, oh, you can't even predict five days ahead with the weather. How how is this done? <laughs> that, that old chestnut. That old yeah. chestnut. How how do you go about finding these fingerprints and being able to say if we get to two degrees, we'll lose the reef? Yeah. Okay. So maybe just firstly, climate prediction is very different from weather prediction, as I'm sure most of your listeners know. So whilst we have trouble predicting the weather beyond a few days, that's more because we, we don't understand perfectly how the atmosphere is going to evolve over short periods of time. But climate's about average changes, um, so we can make predictions uh, for longer periods mm. based on our greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so, sorry, I've forgotten the second part. Oh, just how, how, can we, how can we know? Like, how can you, what's the science behind saying if it's two degrees warmer than it was 110 years ago, we'll lose the reef? Like, what's, how do you do that? Right. So, so we know that if we um, have global warming of two degrees, we can model the climate under those conditions and uh, look at the changes in temperature patterns, rainfall patterns, and then infer the changes um, to ecosystems. So we already know with um, the Great Barrier Reef, for example, it's been under immense strain over the last three years. We've had uh, back-to-back bleaching events in 2016-2017 that resulted in um, about 50% of the corals, Mm. the shallow corals on the reef dying. Um, So it's already under a lot of stress. Corals can only cope with a small uh, band of temperatures. As soon as we warm outside that band, they're in trouble. Um, So what we're seeing at two degrees of global warming is that the, the temperatures are just too warm. The corals are cooking essentially they're they're uncomfortable and that results in very severe bleaching and and death and it's Mm. not just the great barrier reef is it that's right so it's corals around the world uh, that we're seeing this um so obviously the great barrier reef is australia's big uh, coral reef but um hundreds of millions of people around the world depend on coral reefs um Mm. just for for their their life uh, livelihoods for fishing for tourism um we know that um corals have already been under a lot of stress um the last couple of years especially with the big el nino in 2016 Uh, but 
primarily due to, to climate change. Uh, without climate change, they wouldn't have been under the same stress. And uh, we know that, uh, as that statistic says, at two degrees of global warming, uh, we'd probably lose at least 99% of mm. the coral. Andrew, one of the things I've often wondered here is, because we, we hear about these sorts of changes going on, and it feels to me as though this is, and I'm going to say this wrong, but this is the simple stuff, like the early symptoms. And when you, when you start talking about 1.52 and you know, up to four degrees, um, we're not going to see simple stuff like this, like, you know, some coral bleaching. We're going to, we're going to see quite major changes in what we perceive as our, cli- our climate. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what would that look like? Because the, 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 Comments you often go, oh, you know, we get bigger hurricanes and so on. Yeah, okay, you know, there's huge variability in the size of hurricanes we get anyway. But what what's the the biggest stuff? I guess is what I'm asking. Like relative to what we're seeing at the moment is some what seems to me is relatively light symptoms of mm. climate change. And in a few, you know, in 10, 20 years, we're going to be seeing some like holy shit kind of you know, is that the way to describe it? <laughs> like you know, what what would that look like? What Okay, so, yeah, I think the coral reefs are kind of the canary in the column yeah, for climate yeah. change. So the early, clear indicator of the problem. Mm. Uh, but you're, you're right, certainly beyond uh, the, the warming we have now, we're expecting to see more heat waves. That's probably yep. the biggest change that uh, people on the ground will notice right. um, when we have further global warming. So we know, for example, um, there's a study led by uh, Dr. Sophie Lewis, um, who's okay. at UNSW, and she found that um, there would be a risk of days, uh, having 50 degree days in Sydney and in Melbourne under two degrees of global warming. Wow. So yeah. that's something we don't really want to contemplate. That will mean very severe impacts for uh, people's health, uh, yeah. especially. Well, many deaths. Uh, we, it, it's interesting to me just how, you know, if there's a if there's a bushfire, we you hear all over the news exactly how many people died. If there's a hot day, you'll be lucky to hear anything beyond the weather report that it was a hot day, even though the number of people who die on hot days is actually quite significant. That's absolutely right. So heat waves in Australia are by far our biggest killer yeah, in terms yeah. of natural disasters, uh, much more than bushfires or, or floods. Yeah. Uh, but because um, they often, they're, they're not the most visible um, mm. yeah. uh, signs. Uh, you know, people um, suffer heat-related conditions, you know, exacerbate existing health problems often, yeah. and that leads to um, excess deaths. So we, we know in Europe there were thousands of excess deaths uh, during the heat Did wave they, in 2003. Yeah. Um, we know during the, the heat wave that led up to the Black Saturday bushfires that there were, there were more deaths than... Than in the actual bushfires. Yeah, yeah, you never hear that. You never hear that story. No. Yeah. So, so I think... Under two degrees of global warming, the worsening heat waves are going to be the biggest uh, kind of clearest indicator to most of us uh, mm. of, of uh, what's what's going on with our climate. Yeah. And another really key issue is uh, changes in precipitation patterns. Yeah. So we see precipitation meaning rainfall. Thanks. <laughs> I, I, I think for saying it once, someone's like precipitation. What does that mean? Rainfall and snow. Rain, rainfall and snow and hail. <laughs> so uh, in the southern hemisphere, you see a general southward shift in storm tracks. Yep. And we've seen this in southwestern Western Australia. 
since around about late 90s, uh, they've been more or less in permanent drought. Mm. And it's that's the kind of thing we'll see in the southeastern part of Australia as well. Yep. So a, a significant drying, which is you know, bad for urban areas where you, we need water, but particularly bad for agriculture. Mm. It'll be interesting when we get to the point where we then call that drought, but the new climate for those regions. That's, it's a new paradigm. Yeah, yeah. it's the new climate. Um, look, normally we do a bit of news at some stage in the show, but uh, I'm getting a nod from my colleagues here. I'm prompting the nod that we're going to dump it um, so we can come back. Uh, I'm just going to take a, a short music break and come back because I want to talk to you, Roger, particularly about mitigation strategies and what sort of things that the report says we should be doing or need to be doing and uh, what we can do. Three, triple, ah. Chris Capey's bursting to ask an inappropriate question. So I don't think it's inappropriate, but so we're at one degree. We've got this report telling us about one and a half degrees, which is pretty much it sounds from what you're saying is unlikely to be achieved, but, you know, there, there's a, a, a next benchmark in convenient half degrees. Um, we've also heard that two degrees is the sky is falling and really this is seriously not cool stuff. But then we're also hearing three and four and heaven knows how much more. So what I'm wondering, um, because clearly climate science is not complex enough as it is, um, I'm wondering if anyone has actually studied the likelihood of people slash governments doing what needs to be done, because if they if they, if that's being studied... And it's not going to happen. Why are we talking about it? Well, some governments are doing a lot. Sure. But, but back, I mean, to, to get to the root of your question, what the, the likelihood of governments doing something? I, I, I mean, politics is too unpredictable and it's too sort of random. Like if, if, if you get an election result, uh, sometimes elections don't go the way you expect. I mean, look at the Trump election in the US. You know, think things are completely unpredictable. Uh, we've got an election coming up early next year from the federal politics. If we see a change of government, you'd say that would be probably good for, for climate policy. And it, it's pretty dire at the moment. Uh, it's very hard to predict. I mean, it's even more difficult than predicting physical systems like the weather because <laughs> it's based on you know, hu- hu- human <laughs> yeah. uh, wants and needs and There's desires. More parameters. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> than the climate of the planet. <laughs> yeah, well, that, well, that's that's what I'm getting at because I think that you yeah. know for, for the for the mug punters on the ground, the question is really okay. What can I do? I guess, but also what what is worth doing is is the well, thing people often well, ask. What we're actually seeing around the world is that federal governments, because of their complexity and their tendency to be conservative, are, are very slow acting, and the, the lower levels of government, like uh, states yeah. and and councils, uh, and there's a terrific organisation of Lord Mayors that, that that meets and talks about their action on climate right. change, and they tend to be very progressive mm. and doing lots of wonderful programs. So we're actually seeing this sort of groundswell of bottom-up action in spite of the federal mm. position. Okay. So California is a great example of that. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, and the city of Melbourne is also yeah. a mm. good example, mm. you know, closer to home. So in, in terms of the report, though, um, Roger, what, what because it has components of this in it. It's not just about all the, the climate stuff, but it's about the mitigation stuff. So give us a quick bit about the report on that, that stuff. So we, we have large amounts of carbon being pumped into the atmosphere from burning fossil fuel, and every time we add more carbon to the atmosphere, we exacerbate the carbon, uh, the, the climate change problem. And so what the report talks about, which is a bit different to previous reports, it talks about how much more carbon we can put into the atmosphere before we reach these thresholds. Mm. And it's important to recognise for carbon dioxide, it stays in the atmosphere or the atmosphere system for a very long time. Mm. Yeah. So it's not like if we take a longer time to emit the carbon, it won't have as much climate impact. So once it's emitted, it's going to impact on the climate. So we're now talking about what we call a, a carbon budget. We've got about, uh, what is it a, a billion, uh, sorry, a thousand gigatons. I won't try and decipher that 
term, mm. a lot, a lot, <laughs> a lot of gigatons of carbon to emit before we hit two degrees. And we're halfway through that budget already. Wow. If we want to avoid it, we can only emit another 500 gigatons between now and forever. So our right. choice is, do we quickly reduce our emissions now so that we can still emit you know, beyond mm-hmm. towards the end of the mm-hmm. century? Yep. Or do we wait and then have to dramatically reduce our, our emissions and then not emit any more ever again? But, but this presumably brings us into the range of taking it out. Uh, it seems to me as though we'll never get to a point where we're at zero, at least not not in the foreseeable future. So we 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 must therefore be thinking about the issue of taking carbon dioxide out to compensate. So uh, there are technologies that will remove carbon from the atmosphere. And for example, if you have a, a bio like, like plants, well, planting trees is a really <laughs> that's a really good simple yeah, one. Is. Uh, so we should plant more trees and changing agricultural processes, yep. uh, practices to absorb more carbon out of the atmosphere. So you store it in the soil. Uh, lots of good ways of doing that. And then for the more, uh, sort of futuristic technologies, if you have a biomass power station where you, where you burn wood or woody material to make electricity, for example, if you then capture that carbon and pump it underground and store it in geological reservoirs, mm. then you've effectively removed carbon from the atmosphere as mm. well. So there are ways of doing it, but, um, yeah, there are limitations to yeah. how much you actually yeah. can do. And does the report kind of look at all of these things? I know that it, it does paint some dire pictures, but it also talks about what we can, like a successful path where that happens, right? Yeah, so there are still pathways where we can reduce our emissions and, and avoid or, or, or not exceed 1.5 degrees of warming and avoid two degrees. But they involve peaking our emissions by about 2030 and decarbonising our energy sector by 2050. Mm-hmm. Just so, the energy sector, is it, Roger? So, well, well fossil fuel emissions. Yeah. But, but when I say energy, I'm, I'm also counting transport and industry. So we've got our electricity sector, which is in Australia is about a third of our emissions, but transport and industry are also about a third each. But we have to decarbonise all three of those by 2050. Mm. Given that electricity is relatively easy to decarbonise compared to transport and industry, that probably should be decarbonised by, say, the mid-2030s. So that's, that's very soon. Yeah. Now, look, it's, it, as I always say, if people want to make me the leader of the world, I'll fix this up. Um, beyond that, we're going to have to get all our leaders to work to do this, and it's not just uh, people on the ground. It's the people who apparently represent us, but um, <laughs> we'll see about that. Guys, it's fantastic to have had you in um, to talk about this report. Now, we, we could probably talk about it for another hour because there's so much detail in there. And, and it's a good read, folks, if you want to spend the rest of your Sunday reading it, or you could just do what I do and read it. Is it a book? Audio book I'm preparing for you, Chris, uh, personally. <laughs> so I'll read it out to you. Um, but thanks so much for coming in. Andrew King from University of Melbourne and Roger Gatterville from Monash University. Great to have Victoria's two largest universities here in the studio together. It is a rare thing. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, thanks. Lyndon, thanks for bringing these two in. It's been really good talking about climate. We- uh, if we could talk about climate every week. I'd be happy. I'd be happy climate scientist. Well, we do when you're in. I know. We always do. But, uh, that's one <laughs> of the reasons why. Sometimes Ailey's in too. Yeah, well, you we're know, unstoppable. I, 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 a few years back, people remember I said that we were going to do a lot more on climate on the show and um, we ended up one climatologist and then she went and had a baby and we ended up with another climatologist and then they both came back and now we've got two and we're just working on getting 100 climatologists. I want 100 climatologists by, by the time we Yay! hit the two degrees. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have long. Um, Chris KP, good to see you too. Likewise. <laughs> I'm Dr. 
show. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go and for listening and supporting Triple R. Remember, science is everywhere and we will see you again next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au. 